15 Minutes to Places, listeners. Welcome to the first ever episode of Ghost Light, the podcast investigating the mysteries, majesty, and missteps of musical theater. I'm Claire. I'm Marky. And I'm Jake. We are a team of nerds working in Chicago theater. We like stories, we like songs, and we like crying. For all that, we like musical theater. But like all art, the modern musical doesn't exist in a vacuum. It doesn't spring into being by itself, free and easy, without history and context. So here we are. Ghostlight wants to illuminate the past in order to guide the present. We are talking about musical theater, looking inward at our Chicago theater scene and gesturing outward to the larger community. That includes the makers, the takers, the movers and shakers, the fakers, company breakers, and money rakers. Before we jump in, a bit about our name in case the term is new to you. The art of theater making is as old as fire, and so it carries the baggage of a very superstitious history. With as many deaths as there have been, on and off stage, from the lowest of groundlings all the way up to one very notable American president, ghosts have crept in the corners of the theater business since the very beginning. There is a tradition that demands one light stay lit at all hours on stage in order to appease these volatile and dramatic spirits. At best, they hang out wistfully in opera boxes. At worst, they knock shit over and ruin sets. The ghost light keeps them at bay. On a practical level, a ghost light keeps a dark stage safe for who or whatever has to cross once the house lights are out for the night. Nobody wants the stage manager to fall into the orchestra pit during tech. So, in a nutshell, this is what we're serving. Each episode contains a bit of history, a theater ghost story, if you will, and a bit of contemporary conversation around the podcast campfire. Art is integral to the growth and connection of a community, and we want to talk about the musical as a tool in the big dance number that is our American society. It's a wordy way of saying, we love musicals, and we want to talk about it. We have a couple big questions. What is it about musicals that grabs us by the heart? Why should we make them? How can we do better and demand more? We have lots of small questions. How do normal people become musical theater people? Is musical theater as diverse as it should be? What's up with jukebox musicals? How can anyone on earth be Team Karen? How do religion and show tunes mix? Are live television musicals successful? What is it about cats? What can it possibly be? We hope you'll join us as we explore throughout the season. We promise not to talk about cats today. We're starting with the ugliest yet most desirable part of the art form, that which makes show business a business, money. Money makes the world go round, the world go round, the world go round. How much money is too much money for a Broadway ticket? Why am I paying $100 to see the $10 founding father? Do musical theater actors make a living wage? How much does a musical cost to make? I mean, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? $10? If you happen to be rich and you feel like a night's entertainment, you can pay for a gay escapade. If you happen to be rich and alone and you need a companion, you can make if you happen to be rich and you find you are left by your lover Though you moan and you groan quite a lot You can take it on the chin, call a cab and begin to recover on your 14 carat yacht Money 
Because we're theater people and naturally we love math, today on Ghost Light, we're following the money. It takes more than sugar, butter, and flour to make the dough necessary for a musical. Smithsonian estimated as of 2007, it would cost as much as $13 million to produce a musical through opening night, and that was 10 years ago. You can imagine the pressure to perform financially now is as great. After the cost of the physical necessities like set, sound, costumes, etc., Broadway musicals can employ upwards of 100 people. Most of them belong to the various labor unions created for the artist's rights, which fixes their pay at a livable wage. There are PR firms, advertisements, accountants, rehearsal fees, licensing, weekly running costs, union bonds, and benefits for employees, not to mention a hefty amount in reserve in case anything goes wrong. It adds up. Money does indeed make the Broadway world go round. Without it, you don't have a choreographed leg to stand on. Has that always been the case? Uh, yes, yes it has. You might be tempted to think that theater has humble, free performances in the Acropolis-style roots, which isn't exactly wrong so much as it is naive. Even in ancient Greece, there was no such thing as a free lunch. There was an actors' union as early as the 4th century BC. The price of a ticket to the theater of Dionysus was two obols, as much as a laborer earned in a day. With this in mind, it might not seem so obscene to pay $80 for a ticket to Hamilton. And just as we have lotteries and student rush, Pericles introduced a fund to subsidize the cost of theater tickets for the poor. The value of art was understood, and access to it a right afforded to all. Which might not still be said looking at support for public arts programs of today. But that's a subject for another podcast. Or eight podcasts. So, the specter of the almighty dollar has always haunted the stage. Fast forward to the American musical theater scene, past Shakespeare, past vaudeville and burlesque and talkies, we have a stunning in-house example of how money can, and does, comically go dark side on Broadway. And maybe you'd be surprised at just how often. Darling Bloom, glorious Bloom, it's so simple! Step one, we find the worst play ever written. Step two, we hire the worst director in town. Step three, I raise two million dollars. Two? Yes, one for me, one for you. There's a lot of little old ladies out there. Step four, we hire the worst actors in New York and open on Broadway. And before you can say step five, we close on Broadway. Take our two million and go to Rio. Rio? That'll never work. Oh, ye of little faith. You're listening to the Broadway musical adaptation of the Mel Brooks film about Broadway musicals, The Producers. Brooks wrote the script based on real New York producers he knew, one of whom raised money by stooping lonely old women, and a pair of Manhattan producers who flopped to the top, so to speak, profiting from what seemed to be only major failures. Brooks said, A press agent told me, God forbid they should ever get a hit, because they'd never be able to pay off the backers. Thus, Max Bialystok and Leo Bloom were born, and the phrase creative accounting was, uh, coined. Nowadays, that term is commonly used in the financial world, meaning to manipulate one's numbers within the stretch of the law. Movie production houses do it all the time. On paper, due to a lot of shifting and labeling, the Harry Potter franchise actually lost money. Numbers can do all sorts of muggle magic. Hey, Jake, how exactly does the producer's creative accounting scheme work? I'll tell you, Maki. Let's say you're a wealthy investor about town in the Big Apple. You're doing quite well for yourself, friend. How would you like to have a stake in a Broadway musical guaranteed to double your investment? 
Let's say you put 10,000 towards the play and we need a million to go up. It's a small play, but I'm guaranteeing you 1% of what's definitely going to be a $2 million play. It's just you and 99 other investors and it'll be the smartest check you write all year. 10,000 becomes 20,000 and you're popping the good champagne. You got all that? Make it out to cash. But the trick in the producers is that in order to make more money, they raise more money than they technically need. Why? When a play flops, and theirs has to flop because Bialystok and Bloom made the worst musical they could imagine, Springtime for Hitler, investors do not expect any of the original money back. It's technically a loss. So when their flop doesn't flop, Bialystok and Bloom are in big trouble because they promised 200% of the profits away. You get the picture. But this cautionary tale doesn't seem to have stopped anyone because the sheer number of Broadway cons on the books will blow your mind. For example, this past August saw some financial hot water over the Broadway production about opera singer Kathleen Battle. It was slated to feature Oscar-winning actress Lupita Nyong'o. Not ringing a bell? It shouldn't. That production never existed. Roland Scahill was arraigned on charges of a fraudulent investment scheme, claiming he stole a total of $165,000 from seven investors, mostly his own friends. Prosecutors said that the opera singer, Miss Nyong'o, and the theater itself all reported having no knowledge of the operation. Of course they didn't. There wasn't even a script. Roland allegedly took that money, paid off his personal credit card debt, and spent nearly $10,000 on food, alcohol, and entertainment. Not bad, Roland. It's a shame there was seemingly no plan for what happened when the play never opened. Most Broadway money scandals surface when the production is already holding a lot of artists hostage. But no production has suffered as much bizarre and uncanny money trouble as Rebecca, the doomed 2011 musical adaptation of the gothic thriller that is full of deception, manipulation, passion, and destruction just like the scandal that followed. The tale of its Broadway failure is so financially fraught that it was covered in an episode of CNBC's American Greed. Long Island investment advisor Mark Houghton raises the curtain on a bizarre Broadway con. The mysterious death is just part of the wild script he's writing. Mark Houghton, a businessman with a history of grand larceny and forgery, managed to work his way up the brokerage ladder in the 90s and took a position at the prestigious Oppenheimer & Company, where co-workers called him Hollywood because he lived such a luxurious lifestyle. But to support his spending habit, he dabbled in fraud. So along came the West End production of Rebecca, like a poor British orphan, tirelessly hoping to overcome its own financial trouble and raise several million to move to Broadway. Houghton swooped in and promised he could raise the money, essentially acting as a white knight fundraiser, and production moved forward. Houghton submitted a myriad of bizarre expenses, including $18,000 for an improbable African safari with a Paul Abrams, a foreign investor. When Houghton returned from safari, however, he revealed that Abrams had died of malaria and his other investors were therefore pulling out. It became clear Houghton had defrauded the production, and Paul Abrams never existed. So the producers went back to the drawing board in search of new money. Luckily, they found a pinch-hitter angel investor to save the production, and not so luckily, he opted out after the production's own publicist used a fake name to urge the investor not to get involved. So where does that leave the ghost of Rebecca? Stranded in purgatory. 
During the trial, it was revealed that the producers had lost the rights to the musical and will not be involved in any subsequent production. After all this trouble, it's hard to blame them, but sweep aside all the numbers and you have a lot of artists whose work and time became brutal casualties. This is not uncommon when the money falls apart. For all these numbers, can you put a price on human connection, on a night of escape, on entertainment and emotion, on enjoying the hard work of talented artists? Those talented artists would say absolutely yes, and you must if you want to support the artists making the art. It might be a sticky subject, the monetary value of intangible art, but we all agree that time is money. It's the exchange rate that seems to continue to be a subject of dispute. This episode, we got a chance to sit down with Lily Ann Brown, an actress, director, and producer in the Chicago theater scene. She most recently directed Co Candy's hit production of The Wiz. She's also a founding member of Bailiwick Chicago, a musical theater company. Kind of. Well, it wasn't actually strictly a musical theater company, although that was a question that was on the table in our final year Most of us met doing musicals, but we didn't want to just do musicals, but we wanted it to be very musical forward. And one of the questions during the founding that uh, kept coming up was, you know, it's considered, quote unquote, like, okay, when a, quote unquote, straight theater, meaning a theater that does plays, (laughs) not meaning a not gay theater, (laughs) because all theaters are gay, um... (laughs) But uh, when a straight theater does musicals, it's like, oh, yeah, cool. Ooh, yeah, you're doing different stuff. But, like, we didn't know any music theaters that did plays. Oh, interesting. Like, we were like, sure. how could, why couldn't, you know, there are plenty of places where you'll see, like, we do five shows a season, one's a musical. Mm-hmm. And we were like, what if we did musicals and a play? Why would that be weird? Like, we just like musicals more. Most of us are music theater professionals, but we're also like trained theater people. Like we all have the same training. Uh, So that's what we set out to create. And the funny thing is people were really weird about it. Wow. Really? Yeah. Like I, even Chris Jones told me a couple of times, like you guys should just do musicals. Why are you trying to also do a play? And I was like, well, why wouldn't we? Does I just kept thinking, I remember thinking, like, does anybody tell any of these theaters that do an occasional musical, like, you guys should just stick to plays? Like, I, sure. I don't feel like people say that. Well, this this is interesting because I feel like the reason why a lot of theaters that specialize in plays will do a musical is because that's, like, that's their cash cow. It's the thing that will let them fund doing plays, or at least that's sort of the idea Um, do you think that that might be what the divide is, is that people are like, well, if you can just afford to do musicals all the time, you only, why would you then just put on a play if you could be doing musicals? I mean, I guess if all of us are just out here thinking only financially, then sure. But like, I don't know if you're just doing that, then boy, you could be doing a lot of other things other than theater (laughs) and making a lot more money. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't get being in theater you know, as like, and thinking like, oh, this will be our cash cow. Now, of course, you have to think about things like, what is the tentpole show of your season and where's the money coming from? Obviously, because it is it is a business. You do have people to pay and people depending on you. But the reason you're doing this business is for the art. Sure. We uh, have that interesting 
conundrum in our profession of, you know, it being art, which is a calling, and business, which is business. Sure. And having to operate on both levels. And, you know, the funny thing is, when you're in a music theater business, you feel the exact opposite. Like, you feel like the play can be your cash cow because the play is so much cheaper to do. Right. So how... Our first cash cow was a play. And we were doing a musical at the same time. And what was that play? Uh, Fucking Men. And what was the musical that you were doing at the same time? Wow. And actually, they both extended. But, like, Fucking Men ran so long that it extended... Like, Fucking Men opened months before Aida mm-hmm. and extended almost through Aida, the run oh, of wow. Aida. Yeah. So what would you say, I think that there's an idea in theater that say if you're a straight theater company who does mostly plays, you do your one musical, that obviously a musical is going to have a little bit of a bigger budget. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit. A little mm-hmm. bit, yeah. right. Okay, How, what so. would you say, like, proportionally would be the difference between a it's, play budget it, it and a musical? It three times as much to do a musical as a play. And can you run through a couple of the thing, like the extra things that you oh, would need I to do? Oh, I sure can. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you're a company doing plays, you're dealing with, uh, we're all dealing with licensing. We're all dealing with rights, unless you're doing something that is written before a specific year. And at this point, you can do it for free. Right. So if you're doing Shakespeare, you are not paying anybody to do that Shakespeare. Right. You know, if you're doing a contemporary play, you're you're paying some licensing. That licensing is so much less than musical licensing. It's not even funny. Like, a really normal fee. And this, it could be a normal fee if you're in a 100-seat theater, mm-hmm. 100 to 200-seat theater. Just to get the licensing for a musical, you're just paying $7,000, $8,000 right off the top. So that's before you've cast the show, gotten it, done anything. Like before you've paid a venue, before you've done anything, you had to shell out mm-hmm. this sum of money just to get the rights to do the show before you can even say you're doing it. Right. So I think a lot of people don't know about that and then the fact that like you have to then pay extra for the materials, for the orchestration. So now you've got your licensing, right? You're like, okay, I've paid this eight grand. I'm going to do this show. And then they're like, okay, well, if you want the scores, (laughs) pay us some more money and we'll send them to you. So there's all this upfront cost, Mm -hmm. huge upfront cost. So you've got to have the money to do a musical. Right. Definitely between plays and musicals, you typically have a much larger cast you have a band that you have to pay. Right. So, yeah. you ha- Well, you have twice the staff also. Right. So you have to imagine that. Because there are small chamber musicals and, you know, smart people are doing them and smart people are writing them because, mm-hmm. hey, it's so much easier to do. You know, there's the classic music theater of Broadway where there's like 20 chorus members and, you know, there's just tons of people on stage. There's like... 10 quote-unquote principals and 20 quote-unquote chorus members. Um, I believe in ensemble, so I kind of don't like the concept of principals and chorus, but that's my baggage. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But now there's small musicals with small casts, musicals with small orchestrations, and so that's great. That's bringing down costs and making things more accessible for uh, smaller theaters to do. But you're still dealing with like where a play has a director... A musical has a music director and a choreographer. So you're already dealing with like 
wherever there's staff, there's probably more staff. Right, exactly. <laughs> because then those people have assistants and, you know, then you've got to hire the band, the orchestra, however many pieces that is. And that's extra cost. And again, like we're talking about before you ever get on the stage, we have totally different considerations in terms of rehearsal space. Mm-hmm. What are the rehearsal needs? You got to have a piano in there. Maybe you need mirrors. You have to have a sprung floor. People can't dance on concrete. They will hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. And so all of this money is going in mm-hmm. to this musical. Mm-hmm. And so the, but the assumption is kind of, we're going to put all of this money into the musical and it's going to pay off big time when we open because everyone's going to come see musicals because people love musicals and hate plays. Right. It's like this, <laughs> is this theory. I have you found that certainly that's true? Some people's assumption. It has never been my assumption. Right. I think that's kind of a crazy yeah. assumption because to me, musicals are plays. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, they're plays that are uh, this where the storytelling is done through music and uh, movement. So the everybody loves musicals. I think it just really depends where you are and sort of what tropes you're working with in terms of like how what you believe theater is. Like, so what community are you in? Mm-hmm. Are you in a community with lots of kids, lots of uh, retired people with just discretionary income? Like. What community do you serve, I think, is a big question you have to answer in terms of if you're saying everybody loves musicals, oh, musicals are going to rake in the dough. Is that because of your community? Because where I work, just which is in the city of Chicago, everybody likes everything. And so Mm -hmm. you just have to be smart about the material that you're choosing, you know, because everybody likes good musicals. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's what I have to contend with as a director or producer is is the work exciting and good and challenging and fresh and something that people are interested in because that's anybody's guess in a city as diverse as Chicago. Because a lot of people, as a music theater professional, we're always thinking like, oh God, everybody hates musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, when, But that's, I think, when we're talking about sort of... Um, like cultural capital mm-hmm. uh, and how people perceive what you do. So we often feel like, oh, people don't take musicals seriously. They think it's fluff. They think it's, you know, quote unquote, cash cow. But I mean, I'm not the director or producer who's ever doing 42nd Street. So I just kind of maybe don't live in that world <laughs> where it's like, let's rake in the bucks. Because, yeah, we did well, but not because intrinsically musicals make money. Like, that's just mm-hmm. not a statement anyone can make. I think these are just all sort of perceptions. And I think they're, I see what they're based on. People think musicals make money because musicals are what's on Broadway. Mm-hmm. But Broadway is a super highly funded actual tourist attraction like Disneyland. And I think that's what people don't quite get that like Broadway is basically like a theme park. Like it is a destination for people from all over the world to go and be entertained. Broadway is a place where obviously there's great art and great spectacle and entertainment, but I think people tend to focus on the splash and the excess and the millions of dollars and this thing is going to run for 10 years, 20 years, and just like make Gugab's money. Uh, and I think people kind of get that in their heads and they're like, 
and it that thought becomes, you know, through cultural telephone, musicals make money. Mm-hmm. But it's so, so that's such a simplification. Sure. Um, switching gears a little bit um, in terms of theater as a business and as a way to create jobs. What has been your experience in pay scales in theater? And have you ever worked for free? Have you ever worked with people who are asked to work for free um, or are not getting compensated enough for the amount of work that they're putting in? And can you speak to that at all? Who hasn't? Uh, (laughs) If you have never, ever worked for free and or never not been compensated (laughs) commensurately for your work, (laughs) then I don't know if I want to know you (laughs) because that's like the experience of, of being an artist. And if you want to then be a professional artist, meaning I pay my rent doing art, there are considerations that you have to make and sacrifices that you have to make. And there's a, a... sort of path that you have to follow. But when you're first starting out, I mean, if you didn't come across some situation where you were being paid very, very little or nothing, I then, wow, lucky you. That's, you know, 1% of 1% of 1% of artists. Mm -hmm. I do not believe in not compensating people. It kind of killed me. I mean, running a storefront when you have no money... (laughs) And you're trying to make this art, right? And you're doing reasonably well. Like, we paid people very, very, very little at Bailiwick Chicago. And that killed me. Like, I hated that. But the goal, obviously, was, okay, we got to do these shows. And hopefully we can be like a stepping stone theater, right? Like, what I can guarantee you is we're going to have a great process. We're going to respect you. We're getting paid very little. I'm getting paid nothing at all. Like, I made zero as an artistic director salary. Right. Goose egg the entire time. I eventually like took a stand and was like, I'm going to keep my directing fee when I direct a show. That was like two years in. I had been like donating them back or just like not taking them. So I'm essentially working for free. We're paying the actors peanuts, but our hope is that this is a place where Danny Smith can get noticed because we think she's amazing and this is some place where a career can jump off mm-hmm. but it is it enough no no it's terrible and that and it's and that's like the going the going rate in storefront for actors is like 200 to 500 for the whole experience that's rehearsals that's performances that's just like one chunk For one like fee three months of work right yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly so we have to ask the question of like what's going on in this country that like we don't have the funds for this that this is the model that this is okay that this is normal and to me I just feel like everyday art isn't valued enough it's it's sort of You know, there's this huge disparity between, like, Broadway, let's say, you know, and Chicago storefront somewhere. Like, there's just this crazy, crazy gap. And there is, well, because, of course, obviously, theater is always a mirror (laughs) on society, and it's a microcosm of society. So So we find that, like, in society, as the middle class shrinks, we just see that reflected in theater. So we've got, like 
the very poor, like the little tiny storefronts, and then like the very big, you know, Hamilton. And then there's like not a whole lot of Chicago shakes, mm-hmm. court theater. You know, there's not a whole lot of Lord theaters and like regionals where people can make sort of a living wage, you know, something decent and get some health insurance weeks. And what would have to change so that artists could be making a living wage? Well, that's a hard one because it's values. Right. So how do I say like, well, we need to change our values as a country. I think we're all feeling that these days. So, (laughs) you know, that's more than obvious. And we're also at sort of this tipping point globally in terms of what's available to us, right? So there's so much available. There's so much content that can come right into our homes. Mm -hmm. So the devaluing of going someplace and watching people live and paying more for that than you would to get things like endlessly streamed to you in your home. As the culture shifts, how do we battle that? I have no idea, and it keeps me up at night. (laughs) It really does, and it has for years, because I've just felt like, you know, sometimes I'm like, whatever happened to the patron system? Can some rich people just, like, sponsor me? But but at the same time, we want theater to be for the people, right? We don't want it to be elitely funded, well, not only, not, you know, not exclusively. Like, I think elite people should fund theater. But like, I also want regular everyday working people to be somehow involved, whether that's buying a ticket or volunteering to usher. And I think theaters used to be extremely community focused. And that's also a problem is that I feel like a lot of those theaters aren't necessarily focusing on their community, their actual local, the street where you live community and becoming something in that community. Well, now a lot of that is because most of us are itinerant. Right. So how do we even pick, like, do we serve the community of the place we're renting out? What if we don't rent that place next time? Right. Like, it's really difficult to have such a plethora of theaters and having people be community-focused when we're nomadic. Like, it's it's a huge... You see how gnarly this problem gets? So that's all part of this thorn bush, but I think that's a, a, a large part of it is the community aspect. Art is a gift to the community. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like whistling in the wind if you don't find that community and they can't find you. So how do we find each other and make that connection? And this is why a lot of the suburban theaters do very well or theaters that are in underserved communities or in quote unquote weird neighborhoods. So everybody's kind of crowding to be in the same place because they're like, that's where the people are. And I'm like, yeah, but... If you go and find, you know, get an old post office or whatever and go find a community that is underserved, you can make a real connection and a real difference there. And you will probably do better because you will get community support. Mm -hmm. You got to go talk to the people and say, hey, we're here. What do you, this is what we do. How does that line up with what you're interested in? And how can we sort of come together on that.
Thanks for listening. Ghostlight is a production of First Floor Theater, written by Claire Stone and produced by Marky Gray, Claire Stone, Jake Smith, and Ben Kay. Like us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Shoot us an email with your thoughts and feelings about cats or anything else, please, at ghostlightstories at gmail.com. Special thanks to Andreas Fonseca and Susie Miller for their equipment and silence, respectively. If after this episode you've got your mind on your money and your money on your mind, Chicago's first floor theater is about to go into its final weekend of American Hero, a dark comedy about the corporate world of sandwich making at the Den Theater. Tickets and information are available at firstfloortheater.com. It's a rich man's world. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Samuel G. Robertson Jr.